Welcome to episode five of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I will be joined shortly by Kara Goucher, who will also be chatting with me today to interview today's guest. And we are excited to have Ian Sharman on the show today. He is a badass ultra runner who will be racing the Western States 100 miler this weekend, going for his 10th time in the top 10. And his resume in the ultra trail world is really, really impressive. He's won over 50 events. He's won the Leadville 100 miler four times in Leadville, Colorado. He's, as I mentioned, been in the Western States top 10 nine times. He's won the USATF 100 mile championship twice. He also owns the fastest time to complete the Grand Slam of Ultras, which is a series of four 100 milers in about 10 weeks that happens over the summer. So he is an athlete that is really, really impressive on the resume, but he also thinks about this topic in a crystal clear way. So we're excited to get his perspective on the topic of clean sport. But of course, we'll talk more about his background, how he got into ultra training, what his training looks like. We talk about what tips he has for other athletes who might be considering the sport. He coaches Kara up a little bit on her new experiences in the world of trail races as she just finished her first trail marathon a few weeks ago. And then at the end, we actually get his perspective on certain topics like what he thinks about the use of marijuana in the ultra trail racing world, which is steadily increasing. And so we've got some interesting nuances to this topic that we'll get to with him as well. Before we get there, though, did want to also let you know that we're now available on Spotify as well as Google Podcast and Google Play if you have Android devices. So you can now find us in those places as well as, of course, on iTunes and through our direct feed at cleansport.libson.com. So with that as a quick intro, let's go ahead and jump in and bring Ian on the show. Welcome, Ian Sharman, to the show. How are you doing today, Ian? Really good, thanks. Yeah, out at Western States, so ready to roll, hopefully now a couple of days away from it. Which is exciting. I mean, we'll, we'll kind of get back to Western States, but you're going for your 10th time in the top 10, from what I understand, which is pretty amazing. Are you excited for the race this weekend? That, that's a bit of an understatement, yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, the 10th one, I find each year gets more exciting, so this is the most excited I've ever been for the race, yeah. Do you get nervous? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think anyone who doesn't get nervous for a race doesn't care about it, um, but it's about how you deal with that. So I, I'm not worried about things, but I'm definitely kind of not on edge, but you know, a little bit of nervous excitement and trepidation. How do you deal with that as an athlete? Well, one thing I'd actually say about 100 miles versus some of the shorter stuff, like uh, Cara's things with marathons even, is that you don't have to nail it in the first few miles. You don't have to be hitting the pace. If you're doing a 5,000-meter track race, you've got to be on that immediately, and you've got to be with the leaders the whole way. In 100 miles, you can just warm up for 20 miles, which sounds weird, but that's kind of the mentality that I use. <laughs> just a 20-mile warm-up, no big yeah. deal. <laughs> and then you've got a feeling of how good, how good it's going to go for the day and uh, how, uh, how your legs are feeling. And you guys start going straight uphill pretty much right there in Squaw Valley. So that's a nice yeah. way to warm up. Well, it's basically a hike. Uh, you know, I, it, so it's no pressure on having to do a fast first mile split or anything like that. Uh, it's kind of nice. It's very social as well. I've, I've met a lot of people for the first time within races where I've been talking to them in the first 10 or 20 miles. 
don't meet so many people in the second half of a hundred miler because there's not much talking going on there. But early on, it's a very casual pace because you've got to be able to do it all day. And we'll talk about it more, but the trail ultra world is known for its community and camaraderie. So that's certainly something that you get from it. But I want to go back now. We'll come back to Western States in a second and just get a little bit more on your background in sport. How did you get started in sport, you know, broadly? And then specifically, how did you get into the trail ultra world? Sure. Yeah, I, I always used to be very sporty growing up. I was kind of a jack of all trades. Uh, as you can tell from my accent, I don't come from the U.S. So I, in the U.K., I was playing cricket and soccer, a little bit of rugby. I'm a bit small for that. So by the age of 15, I didn't do a whole lot more of that. Um, tennis, squash, field hockey, not running. I mean, I, I did like when I was 12, I did a little bit of uh, 100 meters and hurdles and stuff, but never really much of anything. And then I started working in London, found I wasn't really exercising much, but that was so ingrained in my DNA that it felt weird. So I found something that I could still do conveniently, and that was uh, running. So I, I started training for a race called the Marathon de Sable, which is the uh, desert race in the Sahara that takes seven days. Uh, even though I wasn't a runner, I wasn't thinking of it as a running event. I was thinking of it as a travel and adventure thing that would force me to do some training. And then I just kind of got hooked and, and I did uh, 100 marathons or ultras within the next four years. So I, I, I had one year, I think it was something like 30 road marathons, which is more than every other weekend. So you started small. <laughs> well, I, I didn't start <laughs> fast. Let's put it that way. So a have lot you of ever heard of it? Oh, go on. I was just going to say, have you ever heard of like the half marathon? Like to just like get I your total? I've a few marathon. of those as well. Yeah, but there's something about the marathon that's so special. And especially because I was doing ultras, it seemed like running a marathon was a good training run. Uh, and I lived in London, which is a perfect place to then fly everywhere. So I did all the European capitals. And uh, it's just, a, it, again, it was mixing the travel with the training. It wasn't like I was trying to nail every race. It was more just, a, I'll go to Rome this weekend and I'll get to run. I'll go to uh, Helsinki this weekend and get to run. Uh, and that was very fun. And, and my body held up with it, uh, you know, pretty well. So it's a, it's a good sign that ultra running was clearly for me. When did it become something that became more competitive for you? Uh, only after about five years. So I, I started getting wins in minor ultras. Uh, and my marathon time kept coming down to uh, eventually about, uh, well, 2.32 is, is my best one from 2009. So that's before I even really got competitive in ultras um, and then I've done some downhill ones quicker than that but they're, they're definitely cheating races when you've got 5,000 feet of downhill it's a lot easier to, to get a big PR um, but no it's only really um, after about five years of, of running that I got to the point where I could start getting sponsors uh, it was after doing my first western states really in 2010 where I got top 10 there and suddenly you know finding that people wanted me to coach them and they uh, and, and companies were willing to work with me. Were you working full-time during this entire time? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I used to be an economist and then I switched over to coaching at about that point when I started getting sponsorships. My, my initial thing was, oh, I'll be a sponsored runner now and that's all I have to do. And then after about a month, it's like, no, this is not going to pay enough. I needed some kind of work. So I was thinking of jobs I could do in the running industry, maybe working for the sponsors. Uh, and it ended up that coaching was a thing that, that seemed to work out. And now I've got a, a bigger coaching business with uh, five other coaches and, and we coach people all over the world. So it's really expanded from, from 2010, 2011 to now. So how has your interest and love of the sport evolved over time? Obviously, you started as a way to go travel and have adventure. Then it became competitive. Is it still about that for you or is that a, <laughs> has it evolved further? Um, well, it's evolved a little bit, but I still try to make sure that I enjoy it. I mean, I love coming to Tahoe 
running Western States. The reason I'm doing my 10th one here is partly because it's so difficult to get in. So if I've got a guaranteed entry, then from being top 10 the year before, then it's difficult to turn down. But it's mainly I, I like coming to Tahoe. I like 100 miling. I like the whole environment of it, uh, the pre-race stuff. I don't like the last 20, 30 miles. That bit sucks, but I'm willing to put up with that for the rest of it. And again, Cara, I'm sure you'd be the same, but you love marathoning, but I'm sure at mile 20, you don't love marathoning a whole lot, right? there. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so it's really, yeah, the, the whole, um, ele every element of it and just being able to work within the running industry just means it's a lot more fun than uh, than a more corporate job that I previously, previously had. But for me, you know, there's no point in me doing this if it was just to make a living out of it. And so I've been very aware that I didn't want to just be picking races or doing stuff that is all about what other people want me to do rather than what I want to do. Um, and, you know, sometimes I have to remind myself that and just double check that I've picked the right events and that I'm not doing it because I think I should, but I'm doing it because I want to do it because, you know, no one's becoming a millionaire from ultra running. So it's uh, it's important that you've got that fundamental love for it as well. Otherwise, it'll just stop at some point because you'll burn out. I think some people listening will have trouble conceptualizing love for 100 mile races <laughs> or even conceptualizing the ability to even do it or relate to someone who can do it. So how would you communicate to somebody who may not be a runner or who, who may just, quote unquote, just run half marathons or marathons that this is something that's possible? How do you translate that to a person that might just be an everyday runner who gets out, you know, here and there, but isn't, but thinks hundred miles is crazy. Well, everyone has a different point of where their line of crazy is. And mine is just higher than, than most runners, but it's still there. So I think that the guys that do, there's a race that's 3,100 miles around a city block in New York, and it lasts a couple of months. I think that's crazy. I think, uh, the Barkley marathons, which is over hundred miles and is no markings and it's meant to be as hard as possible. I think that's crazy. And there's other people who do those and they, I'm sure they can count something even above that, that they think is crazy. So I, I think the simplest way of looking at that is, um, when I first got into running, I did my first 13 mile training run and my knees hurt, my hips hurt, bits of me that didn't seem to have been used in the run hurt. And I thought, how the hell does anyone run a marathon? And how could it even be fun as well? And then two months later, I did my first marathon. Two weeks after that, I did my second marathon. And it, it just, you, you change your perspective as you do different things. So when I was doing lots of marathons, I thought 100 miling was crazy. And then I tried it, realized it was possible, got the kind of fulfillment of, of that challenge and overcoming it. And so that's where my crazy line is now. But it's really perspective that everyone has a point where they think, oh, anything above this is too much. But that can change over time. I want to bring Kara in because I, she just did her, as many of us know, her first trail marathon. And I would assume is now contemplating moving beyond that to the ultra marathon trail world. So Kara, as someone who is in that place of thinking about going a little higher in distance into Ian's world, what questions would you have for him about that? I mean, I still think 100 miles is crazy, but I get the, it's intoxicating. Like I, I only did a marathon. It was honestly the worst experience of my life. And yet I came out of it like, well, now what? Like I got through that. Like what more could I get through? But um, I'm really curious about your training because to stay healthy and to put in those kinds of miles, like I'm curious what a typical week looks like. And are you getting a lot of body work done? Like how are you staying healthy through all that? It's probably less than you'd expect. And I, I would say that typically a road marathoner has got 
definitely higher mileage than your average ultra runner. Uh, it may not be less time though, because once you start throwing in mountains and hiking, then to cover say 70 miles can take a lot longer than it might take for a Kenyan guy to run 140 miles. But um, I, I typically would say I, I kind of peak at maybe about 100 miles in a week at the most. Um, I don't think I've hit that this year, uh, but I've been close. Um, a lot of hiking in there, so that makes it a bit easier on the body. Some of it I think of as, as specific training. It might be part of a long run. Sometimes it might just be some additional stuff with a weight vest just for a mile or two walking around town to help with active recovery. So I'd say that the biggest difference is my long runs are a little bit longer than a marathoners would be, um, and my mileage will be tailored towards whatever race I'm doing. So this is a hot race at Western State, so I've done heat training in the last month. Uh, it's hilly, so I've done more vertical gain in the past three months than when I was doing some marathon-based training earlier in the year. So it's really just tailoring it for the specifics of a race, but not getting too bogged down in hitting particular numbers. Uh, and I think especially for you know pro-level runners, things like 100 miles a week is a, a clear threshold a lot of people think about. And if it's less than that, it's not enough. And uh, if your competitor's doing 140 miles a week and you only do 130, it gets in your head. I've I've never done 140 miles a week of training. It's my body wouldn't withstand that. Uh, certainly not for the long term. So a lot of it as well is just ad adapting along the way and saying, okay, last week was a bit more exhausting than I thought. Take it down a notch this week. Um, it, it doesn't need to be quite as sharp overall in terms of the speed work as you get for track and road running. So that also makes it a bit easier on the body. So I, I can um, I know that if I do a bit less training but, or maybe less running but includes more hiking, then it may look like a lower week, but it's actually still really good training for what I'm doing. Uh, and I do get things like massage normally once a week uh, when I'm in heavy training. I do foam rolling uh, on a fairly regular basis, although less so if I'm getting a massage a week because I kind of put pilot on them to deal mm -hmm. with everything. Um, and I, I think the main thing is just trying to be adapting along the way rather than getting bogged down in having to hit mileage targets or last year I did X so I have to do at least that this year I can't possibly be as good so a lot of it's really the flexibility that allows you to fit it in but in terms of how hard the training is on the body it's certainly not as hard as, as a pro marathoners training I would say. I saw a video of you walking on a treadmill at some like outrageous incline <laughs> is that like pretty common? Yeah, well, especially at this time of year, because where I live in Bend, Oregon, um, I can get into the mountains in July, so I can get that stuff next month, but I can't get it yet because it's too snowy, so I can use the treadmill instead, and uh, my one goes up to 40%, it's a Nordic track one, so that allows me, I don't actually ever take it to 40%, um, because it just makes me go so slow, I only do that outside, but I do 20-25%, and it's just trying to mimic what I'll do in races, so lots of the training is trying to force the body and the mind through what race day will involve. Yeah. It's also different. I'm, I'm, I'm a road marathoner primarily, but I'm training for my first 50 miler later in the summer. And one thing I'm enjoying about it is it, the mentality is completely different. You know, when you're trying to get to the edge to run your fastest road marathon, you, you're always finding that edge. But when, at least when I've, what I've found with the, what I've been doing with, with ultra training and, and the race I'm doing has a lot of vertical gain. So I'm working a lot of that into my world. And it's really about trying to make that feel as easy as possible and sustainable as possible for long periods of time. And so instead of pressing to the edge all of the time, you're kind of getting into this rhythmic zone that you can hopefully sustain. And it's just completely different. And for me, kind of refreshing as well. 
Well, I think it's a lot like if you said to a track runner, like uh, someone like Mo Farah, who's obviously awesome at 5,000 and 10,000 meters, and then he goes to the marathon, and I hear him make comments like, this pace is really easy, but it's obviously difficult to do for two hours. But when you come from that amount of speed, it does feel slow. So when you come from marathoning to ultra running, again, obviously the intensity drops. So uh, it, it should feel relatively easy. And like I said, I, I talk to people in the early stages of, of 100 milers. The intensity level is pretty low. My heart rate is not anywhere near where it would be in a marathon. Otherwise, I'm only going to get quarter of the way through the race before I blow up. What about speed work? What does that look like for you in ultra training? Um, I tend to do it a little bit more in terms of the time of year, not just uh, exactly what I need for the race. So I still do speed work. A lot of it is very marathon style speed work, but once I'm training for hills, more of it will include things like hill reps and trying to mimic elements of what I'll do in a race. Also, I like to throwing in half marathons or marathons as speed work for ultras, which probably sounds crazy to Cara, but think about it this way. You know, if, if I'm running, uh, you know, eight minute miles in a, in a hundred mile, I'm running six minute miles in the marathon that's speed work. You know, I'm not running a whole lot quicker than six minute miles much of the other time. So I do do uh, some speed work when I build up earlier in the season to try and get good marathon fitness. And then I'll use some some road races as well as trail races that are shorter. And I think of those as part of the speed work. But then within the last month or so uh, before 100 mile, there's not that many hard speed workouts. It's much more about getting the other specifics. So starting to do the heat work, uh, being at altitude this last week in Tahoe, um, and certainly a lot more hills and hiking because I know I need to refine those. So when I go into a hundred miler, I'm not in perfect marathon shape, but I've got lingering elements of that from when I was training for it a few months earlier. So what do you think, Kara? Are you convinced? <laughs> I mean, I need a coach, so I don't know. <laughs> I am available. I can certainly help <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> I think Ian does that. I mean, that's the thing, it, especially when people come with a lot of speed or from roads, they think things like hiking and walking are giving up. Because if you walk in a marathon and you're trying to run 220 or something, that is giving up. That's never going to happen in a good race. But here you can have not just a lot of walking. I probably walk, walk fast, admittedly, but walk maybe 20 to 30 miles at uh, Western States. So that's a big proportion of it. But also it's just... Um, that things can go wrong and you still have an awesome race. So it's not like you expect it to just be feeling good the whole time. You know there's going to be some really big obstacles. I've had races that I've won and I vomited in them. Um, only happened once, but still, you know, it's not like it was game over at that point. Um, and so it's just a, a very different mindset, I think, of being able to cope with um, the adversity of, of an ultra and and the longer the race is, the more it comes down to the mental side of things and the tactics rather than just how fit you are in the first place. So you've, you've been giving us some sales pitches to care on moving up to the ultra distance. <laughs> but if you if you were to talk to a, a, a new person who maybe has done a half or a full and and wanted to move up in distance, either 50K, 50 mile, even 100 mile, what's what's your sales pitch? Um, I would say don't rush it for one thing. So um, to give you an example, I did my first 50 miler in 2005, my first 100 miler in 2010. So there's five years there going from 50 to 100. I did not want to rush it and I wouldn't recommend anyone to do it uh, or not to feel like they have to do it quicker than that. It's good to build up the years of training, the endurance. When you come from Cara's background, you, you've got the mileage, you've got all of that that you need. So it's a bit different for you, for example, but someone who maybe hasn't been running as long, don't suddenly just read a book and go, I must do a hundred mile next month. 
instead say, okay, let's try a marathon and then a 50K a little bit down the line, enjoy each new distance, try a 50 miler. Don't pile it all in and just think of those other distances as stepping stones to the ultimate goal. Think of them as goals in themselves and enjoy them. I mean, again, it comes back to that fundamental thing that if you don't enjoy this, it's very difficult to do the training, never mind the racing. Uh, and there's nothing better about doing a hundred miler versus a 50k or a, or a trail marathon. Uh, but there's, you know, I, I certainly appreciate the additional challenges that come with it, but enjoy the other stuff as well. And don't rush increasing those distances because it'll allow your body time to adapt and it allows you to kind of enjoy the process more too. I think another thing I would add to the sales pitch is, and this is something Kara that you experience in your race there in Leadville, the trail community is a really strong one. So, Kara, talk about that part of your experience, and do you have questions for Ian that might be along those lines of why that community is so powerful? Yeah, I mean, I the, I would not have finished that race if it hadn't been for the other people in the race. I mean, people were walking with me, running with me when I could run, um, talking me out of just, like, sitting down, you know, like, talking me through like waiting for me while I threw up, like, I mean, people, I would not, I, I would not have finished. I mean, I was checked out. I was like, I need to find someone who can transport my body back down to my Airbnb because that's, I'm just done. I've never been in this place. So the community really floored me and it made me think like, would I have done that for someone else? Like, I don't, I don't know that I would have, because that's not the world that I come from. And it definitely has changed my mindset of like, that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to be more like the people that I experienced that day. But what do you think it is that makes that like, I mean, I it was not an ultra. So I just want to be crystal clear. I have not done an it ultra. It effectively but... was though. Being on trails now <laughs> is the equivalent of an ultra compared to a road marathon. Okay. But I, I yeah, okay. Well, okay. Thanks. But um, <laughs> what I want to know is like, what do you think it is that makes the difference between someone willing to slow down and, and willing to walk with someone and, I mean, I've, I've had one marathon where I bonked and when people went by me, they were sticking it to me, like mm -hmm. open road. And they were giving me an elbow as they passed me wide open road in New York city, you know? So this was so different. And I just, I mean, I just loved it so much. And I, I would be sitting here in a horribly depressed mood talking to you guys if it hadn't been for the kindness of those other athletes. And so I, what I think, do you, think, makes I, I think you see it in, in um, both cycling and in running that the people on the trails, so the mountain bikers versus the road cyclists and the trail runners versus the road runners, there's often a little bit more from just enjoying being outdoors. Uh, I think, and this is a very broad generalization, but in, in general, people doing road races are more focused on their own PRs, their times, their splits and being in their own little world. And particularly if you're in a race that's, you know, New York marathon with 50,000 people, there's so much hustling and bustling, you're kind of just protecting your own space. If you're in a smaller race where there's a bit of hanging out before, there's hanging out at the finish, it's much more social. And it just encourages, I think, that kind of environment where we're all in it together to have fun on the trails, not just to compete. And I think one, one big difference, kind of like you described there, is that if someone passes you and you're looking bad in a professional high quality road marathon, they're not wanting to know if you're okay. They're wanting to know if they can beat you. While right. in this kind of race, you know, when I've gone past people who are looking really bad on the side of the trail uh, or they're just struggling, maybe they're just walking, but they look okay. Then you slow down and you say, are you okay? Do you need anything from the next aid station? Do you need medics to come back? Uh, or an encouragement of, you know, you can do it. We're almost near the end. You, you can, you can push yourself and you want, you want people to do well. I think that the easiest way of thinking of that is, 
in trail running, I'd say in general, people want others to do well. They want to beat them, but they don't want to beat them on a bad day. They want to beat them on their good day. While in road running, maybe it doesn't matter as much if the other person has a bad day. Have you seen that evolve in the last 10 years, Ian, as you've had more road, high-end road athletes move to the trail? A little bit. I think it, that the fundamental thing's still there. And part of it, I think, is there's just less money in trails than there is in, in pro road and, and Olympic type distances where, you know, it's not a million dollar contract or, or ridiculous money where there's a much bigger incentive to uh, to just win at all costs. Uh, and that also is linked to, to doping as well, where I'm not saying there's no doping in, in ultras and trails. I'm sure there is. But I think there's just a slightly different culture around it that means that there's less incentive to do that. Firstly, there's less monetary reward. And secondly, people are in it for a slightly different reason. And you don't get as much of uh, a payoff from cheating as you might uh, in road racing. So again, I'm sure there is doping, but um, I think it's just generally a lower, uh, a lower amount of it happening because the culture here is more about enjoying what you do. And if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to be in it just for the money because there's not enough money to justify that. So Going to the doping part of the questions, what you you say you don't think there's a lot of in in ultra trail racing. Why do you think that? And do you think it's actually trending upward? I mean, what where do you think the state is with with doping in ultra world? I would guess it's trending upwards because there's more money, more sponsors, more television television coverage and things like that. So there's bound to be more more people who will be tempted by that. And that's why I think it's so important to keep the culture of some of the things I was just describing, because in cycling, for example, uh, in previous years, Tour de France, things like that, um, even though there was huge amounts of money spent on testing, the culture was, ah, we're all cheating, who cares? We've got to do that to be on a level playing field. And when you've got that, it doesn't matter how much you spend on testing, there's always going to be more money to help with the doctors to help you dope than to catch you doping. And so it, it's really important to, to make sure that it's understood that people are not cheating in general and that you don't need to do that to compete. And it is wrong rather than finding easy ways to justify it. So I'm sure that will change marginally over time. But I don't ever see it being nearly as pervasive as it was in in the kind of sport where Lance Armstrong can rack up 140 million dollars of of earnings, and uh, uh, you know th there's just not that kind of incentive between a win and a second place that you, in, in ultra running. I, I do see it being more of an issue because the sport's growing, but uh, hopefully uh, as we get more testing, that helps to uh, helps to discourage it a little bit. But without the right culture, it doesn't matter how much you spend on testing. What is the state of testing in ultra world? Um, well, I've been tested a total of three times in ever. Uh, one of them was at the Comrades Ultra in South Africa. Um, and I wasn't even in the money or anything like that. It's just I, I looked really excited and really bouncy coming into the finish. So I think they just pulled me <laughs> over and said, you might be on drugs. <laughs> so uh, that one was uh, about 10 years ago. And then uh, the last two years at Western States where they have um, uh, doping controls for the top 10 men and women but they're right at the finish line. Um, and I, I would argue that I wish they spent the money in a different way, at the very least to do it in a random way and you not know when it's going to happen. I think it would be, you know, assuming maybe there is someone who's cheating, you're probably not going to get caught if you know you're going to be giving a urine sample and you know when you're giving it. So, uh, you know, I, kudos to them for having testing here, but I think they should do it at least with a bit more uh, random element to it so that there's more chance of catching someone unexpected. So what would you like to see 
the ultra community do. And obviously for a community that is largely organized around the big races without a big governing body, I mean, what are the possibilities for that world? I think it's very difficult. I don't think there's any answer that any sport has found, no matter how much money you've got for how to do doping testing in the best way. I mean, uh, biometric passports uh, are certainly useful. So you can try and tell if someone uh, has suddenly got much higher levels of uh, red blood cells or testosterone or something like that compared to where they've been before. <clears throat> but it's very expensive. And, and with microdosing and other ways, I think people can still get around it. So again, if there's enough money to do that testing, there's probably enough money for people to have doctors to get them around it. So I, I do think it's a very difficult uh, thing to grapple with. So there has to be some degree of testing. It needs to be random. So there's at least a chance of getting caught. If there's no chance of getting caught, then people will get away with, with, with cheating uh, if there's zero consequences. But I think the chance of catching someone are always going to be low. So you've got to make sure that instead there is a, a culture that people are less likely to do in the first place. And secondly, that there are lifetime bans. So you get a really good, hard uh, um, reason to not do it. That it's not like you lose a couple of years of earnings, but that you lose your your rights to do that sport ever again. Um, you know, think about it like a lawyer. If you get disbarred, you don't get to keep being a lawyer. You're, you, you've been ethically compromised and you're out. I feel the same with running, with cycling, with any sport that if you're caught once, um, obviously there's an appeals right and, and they've got to check with a B sample and stuff. But if if, uh, if there are no genuine excuses, like someone shot you in the arm while they tied you down or whatever, and it wasn't you doing it, and this is videoed, basically that that there is no way you can just say, oh, I didn't cheat. It must have just been the food I had. I, I think we all just need to be educated enough to know what we can and can't have so there won't be an accident. But if you get caught, um, so that's it, that you say your, your time in that sport as a competitive athlete is over. Not that you couldn't run and not that you couldn't do some kind of uh, non-competitive element of it, but that you are not allowed to compete, uh, especially for prize money, but even for just prestige, because the biggest races in ultra running, uh, like Western States, like UTMB in France, they have no prize money, but they're worth a lot of money to sponsors. And uh, for example, me as a coach, the business I would get from winning those races. So there's definitely an incentive to cheat, but it's not, um, it's not something where you could just say, it's, well, there's no prize money, so it doesn't matter. I think Kara would agree with you about lifetime bans. What do you say, Kara? Yeah, I mean, you're speaking my language. I'm yeah. loving this. And I agree with you. I think it's awesome that Western States has testing. But just like you said, at the if you, if you know there's a chance you're going to be tested, you're going to be clean by the time you get to the race. And I agree. I think it needs to be out of competition, probably, out of mm -hmm. competition, random testing. But I'm not an expert on how to implement that. But I totally could not agree more. And you described lifetime bans and the reason for it like so well talking about a lawyer being disbarred. I always think of a doctor losing their license. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know why we have this culture in sport where we go, Oh, well they messed up. Like we'll give them another chance. And, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the other thing that's different between, um, that, professional um, job like a lawyer or a doctor is that it, there may be some benefits that if you dope, you may have uh, first of all got long-term benefits to your fitness, but at the very least, let's say that uh, for an Olympic athlete, that gives them a gold medal instead of a fourth place. So it gives them more opportunities. It gives them more confidence. These are things that will last forever, even after their two-year ban or four-year ban. And so that's another reason why they should never be allowed to, because they, they, they probably have lasting benefits from that, not just, <laughs> not, not just because they benefit immediately. Um, so, you know, and again, we don't know exactly how much they benefit, but if it's any amount at all, 
Uh, and certainly there's no doubt that if you get more opportunities like you uh, get a gold medal, so that allows you to be a full-time athlete rather than working in Starbucks as well. That kind of thing is a massive difference that's going to last forever. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there's any good argument against that. I, I'm amazed that it's not more general consensus that there should be lifetime bans. I suppose the only reason is people say, well, maybe it was a false positive. But if that's the case, they shouldn't have any ban in the first place. You've got to have testing that's more reliable. Here, here, preach, <laughs> preach, Ian. That's that's fantastic. The well, and and we didn't even mention the impact on the other side of the, of it, which is that if you get fourth place instead of being on the podium, or get second instead of first, then you've got lifetime impacts as well for mm -hmm. that clean athlete that you know, sits in behind that person doing it the wrong way at the top. And it's so, never the same if you get given your gold medal eight years later when you've retired. You've lost mm. a chunk of that career and a lot of opportunities. Kara knows a little bit about yeah. that later medal upgrade. Just talk about that for a second, Kara. You got a silver in the world champs many, many years after you earned a bronze there. What was that like? You know, I, I do feel like I got lucky because that bronze changed my life in a dramatic fashion. And for instance, Joe Pavey, who went from fourth to third, she didn't have that. I mean, I was always a medalist, right? But I will say, so, I mean, it, it changed my life in a profound way. And so I feel like lucky in a sense, because it could have been, I had no opportunity, but I will say I know I always saw myself as lucky for getting that bronze. And I do think that, and I think athletes get this. If I had finished second, and there was just one person between me and a world title, I think I would have believed in myself a little bit more. I always looked at myself as I'm a smart racer and I'm scrappy. And when the window opens, I'm jumping in, you know, I'm making a door out of it. But I never thought of myself as the best. And I think if there had just been one person in front of me, my mind would have switched a little bit more. Um, but I will say that I was more fortunate than a lot of other people because I did benefit hugely from that bronze. You talk about culture several times there, Ian. What can be done, and, and obviously the ultra world has a great culture already, but what can be done more to continue to instill that culture so that it doesn't continue to, to, to take over as it possibly could? Well, there's obviously more touchy-feely things like we all be nice to each other and stuff, but that's not really a concrete plan. I, I would say one of the biggest things is saying lifetime bans so that people know that and even though there's no governing body here, that if you get caught in a, uh, a legitimate uh, anti-doping um, sting or in another sport even, like Lance Armstrong shouldn't be allowed to compete in running, um, then you say, okay, as a race, we may not be affiliated to a, a governing body, but we have a policy saying, if you've ever had a, a, a doping ban, then uh, you're not allowed to compete here. Because that just sends the message that it's unacceptable and it's not a slap on the wrist. And so I, I do think that that comes down to both um, discouraging people in the first place just from a lack of incentives and also making the culture very clear that this isn't a minor thing that, like, like Cara just explained, I mean, someone could lose even being a medalist like Joe Pavey. The difference between a medalist and not, not being a medalist is huge. The difference between first and second, the gold and silver, is massive um, in terms of contracts. Even sometimes people who get gold medals, it doesn't last that long afterwards for their contracts. I think it was uh, Greg Rutherford, the uh, Olympic uh, long jumper, who got a gold and lost his sponsorship the next year because it wasn't an Olympic year. Uh, and, and that's the gold medalist. So imagine if he'd have come fourth, he'd have, you know, he wouldn't be able to make a living out of it to the same degree. So just those opportunities that are 
literally being stolen from people. I think that, you know, it's just hammering at home things like this podcast, people discussing it, uh, leaders in the sport saying why they think it is not acceptable and why even maybe, you know, a 50 year old who's taking some extra testosterone and goes, well, I'm not going to win or any prize money. So so who cares about me uh, have, doing something that would technically be illegal in the race? It's just to make sure that through the whole way, it's not just, oh, I'm not going to win or I'm not going to get money. It is just the rules say X, so you do X. You and Kara are both sponsored by Ultra. What do you think about the role of sponsors in this equation? Uh, well, very similar to the lifetime bans from competing. Uh, the races should say that, the sponsors should as well. And when I was involved in US Skyrunning, uh, I, I had a, a group of other people uh, within the sport and we were trying to... Um, basically get some kind of doping, uh, anti-doping controls across the whole sport. And at the very least, we did get quite a lot of sponsors to sign up to having it in the contract to say, if you're caught doping, your contract is ended and we will never sponsor you again. So uh, I think it's every one of my sponsors, I believe, has that in, in their contract. And Ultra was one of the first ones to, to jump on board and say, yeah, we totally agree with that. And again, it seems like it's a uh, an obvious thing, uh, especially in a smaller money sport, that that's a no-brainer that the sponsors would do that. I can kind of see why some big companies who have multiple Olympic gold medalists would want to give their guy a second chance. But unfortunately, again, it's money talking there rather than ethics. And it just it, that filters through to the whole sport when that happens. So I honestly think that anyone who's been caught doping should not have any sponsors. Uh, and there's big companies out there with big contracts for Olympians who are not sending the right message, unfortunately. What do you think about athlete pledges? From what I understand, you were one of the first to sign the Clean Sport Collective pledge as an athlete in 2016 from the ultra trail world. Do you think that has a role? Yeah, it, again, it's just signaling. It's like, like I was saying, people who are more prominent in the sport, just making it clear what they believe. I mean, there's obviously going to be hypocrites who will say that just to make themselves look good and they have every intention of cheating. But at the very least, it's just sending the signal that we as a sport and the people at the front who are making a career out of it are genuinely taking this seriously. It obviously isn't enough on its own. It, there's multiple elements to the culture, but every little helps. Everything that just shows that cheating is not going to be tolerated um, is, I think, a really good step forward. So uh, every small incremental improvement there is good. We're talking about establishing the black and white, right? Eliminating the gray, which is powerful in setting culture. There's also, though, some, I think, gray areas that need to be discussed in this conversation. One of them that I know has come up in the ultra trail world is the use of marijuana as a tool in races to perhaps dull the pain and, and make the struggle of 100 miles a little bit more, I don't know, enjoyable, easier. I'm not sure exactly how it's being used, but I'd be curious to get, one, just your perspective on what's going on with that in your sport and to what extent it is being used and how broadly and then is there something that needs to be done and from a from a doping control standpoint to make that an illegal substance um i would say that there's there's multiple aspects to that i could probably talk on this for way too long but the the main thing is i have no issue with people using drugs in general i think drugs should be legalized all forms uh, and when we're talking about you know things like heroin and whatever, and they should be regulated and people should be helped and treated like a public health issue rather than as a uh, as a criminal issue. So that's a totally separate thing com compared to competing. So marijuana, that's legal in many states, including the one that both Kara and myself live in. Um, and so using that, no issue with that. 
and, and as long as it's within whatever the rules say, and at the moment it basically says you can't test positive for a certain amount in your bloodstream on race day, but you're allowed to have it uh, outside of, of competing. So if someone was high two months out from a race, they're unlikely to have any issues on race day. And some people do use that within ultra running uh, to enhance performance because it could potentially help you keep your stomach a little bit more settled and therefore make it easier to eat. Some people have said it can keep them a little bit calmer, a little bit more relaxed as well. That could potentially help. Um, one of the issues here is that most of the reasons why something is legal or illegal are based on the fact that uh, it, it clearly is performance enhancing in shorter stuff. And so the idea of keeping your stomach settled 20 hours into a race isn't even really being tested for. So that's not on their radar. So it might not help at all for a marathoner, but it might help with an ultra marathoner. So there, there's definitely that gray area that the rules are not being made with ultras in, in mind. Uh, and there might be some benefits that we, we ultra runners could get that others wouldn't. Um, my, my simple thing would be, though, whatever they decide on on those rules, there's scientists who can decide, does this help or does it not? Those are the rules and, and you've got to stick by them. And if you smoke weed and, and then on uh, race day, it's in your system above a certain level, that is just as illegal as if you were purposefully taking something else. Even if you weren't using it to enhance performance, it's just the rules and you stick by it. So that's where the kind of white and black is, I think, there. The gray is that there might actually be benefits in ultra running that maybe it helps you sleep better and recover better. Maybe it helps you train better on some long runs um, and things that are not really being looked at as much for Olympic distances and therefore um, might it might not be banned to the degree it should be for ultras as a result of that. But again, I'm not a doctor here. I, I would just say the simplest thing is whatever those rules are, they apply to an ultra as they apply to a, an Olympic race. And if you can't stick within them, then you can't race. Thoughts on that, Kara? I mean, I basically said that at this anti-doping panel I was at, and I got some good feedback and some bad feedback, but I like to keep it simple. I'm competing under the rules, and if that's what the rules say, then that's what the rules say. And just like Ian was saying, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, I'm not going to decide what should and shouldn't be banned, but if it's on the list and that's the rules that I am abiding by in the competition I'm in, then those are the rules I'm following. Let's talk about footwear, which is in some ways could be performance enhancing. I know Kara faced the 4%, I believe in prototype form at the trials back in 2016 and finished fourth in that race in, in what could have been another Olympic berth for her. We also have a competitor's ultra that has released a shoe with a carbon fiber plate and recently had a big marketing push to, to basically try to at least on the road, break some, records for ultra distances with that shoe what's your perspective on that ian um, i think that probably the simplest way to compare it is when they had those new speedo swimsuits at the olympics a few times ago and all the records went down and then they banned them uh, i think it, you know if it's deemed to be such an enhancer then maybe it gets banned maybe it doesn't again I, that's not for me to decide I doubt, to be honest, especially in trail running, that you can find a shoe that's going to make you go that much quicker. Uh, it probably would help a little bit more in road running where it's more uniform. And if that gives them, you know, one minute off their marathon time, then I suppose, you know, unless it's unless the governing bodies decide that it's an unfair advantage, other companies are, are free to use the same technology and, and uh, make their shoes better. And, you know, like any technological development, we all gain from that. So I wouldn't say I have an issue with that. Uh, and I was actually surprised that they banned those Speedo suits. Um, after getting all those records. But um, 
yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't consider that cheating to have a pair of shoes that help a little bit because I also don't think it would be that much to be honest. But even if it is, it's up to governing bodies and and other uh, you know Olympic committees and stuff to decide what's fair there. Make the rules and enforce it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a much simpler way of looking at it that way. Uh, and you know, you can argue with those rules. You could say, oh, they're not using the right experts, but that's a different conversation to do they have the right to tell you what to do or not? And, and if they tell you to do one thing, you got to stick to it. When you line up in an ultra race, like you'll line up this weekend at Western States against some of the best ultra runners in the world. Do you think about this topic? Are you looking at certain individuals, you know, not that we have to name them and thinking, I don't know if that person is doing it the right way. Does it enter your mind at all? Not at all. I mean, I, like I said, I, I don't think it's pervasive in trail running. I may be being naive there. I certainly think it's less pervasive than it has been in cycling and in uh, track and marathon running at the moment. Um, but, I, you know, I look at it as even if they are cheating, there's a lot more than just the pure physical side of it that'll matter. And so I'll try and beat them on that side of things. I already know that there's faster, fitter guys than me. I'm not a super fast road runner. There's guys who have higher VO2 maxes who can run up a hill quicker than me. Uh, and that's why I'm doing 100 miles rather than uh, than a shorter distance race, because I'm not as competitive at even a 50K as I am at 100 miles. So it, to me, it, it doesn't make it right. But I do think at least that I'm not going to have my position determined purely by other people doping, even if all my competitors were doing it, because there's so much else that can go wrong. And I, I'll favor myself to do that well. If I was a, a pro marathoner, I would definitely think differently to that. I would I'd be looking around going, how many of these people are cheating and how many places is that going to cost me? I'm sure Kara has been there thinking that. So let's talk about Western States this weekend. For the for the person who might be listening who doesn't know what Western States is, in some ways it's I kind of compare it to the Masters or the US Open in golf. It's it's one of the, the majors, basically, in the ultra one hundred mile world. And it's a part of the Grand Slam of Ultra Running. And so it's it's one of the major events that attracts a lot of top athletes. Getting top 10 there is huge. You've done it nine times, going for a 10th, I think in 10 tries, which is yeah. Yeah, really, I, really it was my impressive. First and then it's been every year since then. It's also got crazy elevation change, and you go from maybe seeing snow in one part of the course to potentially 90 plus, 100 plus degree weather in the valleys in certain parts of the course. So it's got extreme conditions, lots of climbing, lots of downhill. So just paint the picture for those who might be naive about what Western State's all about. Sure. Well, first of all, well done for getting this far through the podcast, having no idea what we're talking about with those ultras. Um, <laughs> but, but Western States, it was the original 100 miler. So it's been going since 1974. It was a horse race. And then a guy one year decided to, to run it instead because his horse was lame. So, you know, that, that gives it the history. That's one of the reasons it's so big and important. It's also really difficult to get into because it's limited to under 400 people and you get thousands and thousands wanting to get in each year. So that adds the value to it. To you know, People can't get in, so they want to get in. Um, but traditionally, it's just been the most competitive, uh, certainly 100 miler in the US. Uh, and now they arguably UTMB in, in Europe is a, a bigger race with more elites and even more competitive. But for for North America, this is the you know the, the way of thinking of it is like the World Championships, the Olympics of of what we're doing. So that makes it extra special. It also means that a lot of races you go to, not everyone's necessarily peaking for them. They might be using it to train for something else. This is a race everyone here is is in their big event. This is it's like again going to the Olympics. No one is there to just uh, 
take it easy and, and see how it goes and, and, and train for something else. Um, and yeah, it's super hot, decent amount of climbing, net downhill, you go through the mountains, you go through the canyons, and then there's some flatter running as you get towards Auburn. Um, the hottest temperatures you can get to are, are over about 110 degrees once you get to some exposed sections nearer to the river at, at the hottest time of day. So it gets really extreme. And, and I was just on the course this morning. There's certainly a good chunk of snow in the early miles, but not as much as some of the other years I've done it. But it's just a good contrast of, of things where it's got plenty of climbing, it's got heat, it's got snow, it's pretty runnable and fast. You know, some of the, the more mountainous 100 milers are 20 or 24 hours for the winner. This one was 14 and a half hours last year, which is not that far off the track world record of 11 and a half hours for uh, for 100 miles. So it's only slowing people down a little bit despite all those things. But it's really just this is where you go to if you want to compete with the best. So it's got the same appeal as going to a world championships or Olympics that you it's the big one to win. It's the most exciting one to test yourself against the best people. And how are you approaching it this year to get another top 10? Uh, well, I, I've had top 10 every year, but I've never been higher than fourth. So I, I want to win this race and I've, I know that it's doable, nice. but at the very least, I want to be in the podium. So uh, that, that's that's definitely the goal. And, and I think I've hopefully learned enough from the other nine years that I can improve. Bearing in mind, some of those years, I wasn't actually prioritizing this. I had comrades three or four weeks before in South Africa, and then I just did this afterwards. And then because I got the top tens, I kept doing it. I had no intention to do 10 or more. It just kind of has ended up that way. So yeah, I'm hoping I can keep improving. I'm, I'm 38 now, which is uh, fairly old for a marathoner, but not too bad for an ultra runner. I've got a, a few more years and Kara's and, and certainly got uh, scope to keep improving. One of my fellow coaches at, at my company, Charmin Ultra, is Magda Boulay, who is an Olympic marathoner. She came here and she won it uh, in her 40s. She's now mid 40s and she's still competing at the top level in ultras. So uh, I hopefully have a little bit more time to, to keep uh, getting some good results. But this is just, you know, this is the one that matters the most to me. So there you go, Kara. Oh, I'm wondering really quick. Um, there's going to be some dark moments in, during your race, right? There's going to be some times where you're questioning yourself. I mean, just based on my very limited experience, <laughs> I can't imagine you're not going to go through that in a hundred mile race. So I'm wondering mentally, what are, what are your go-tos? How do you fight through those patches? That is, I think, one of the biggest elements to it that's different between just doing a race with pure fitness and doing it with the experience and the motivation to, to do as well as possible. Because it's not like you say, okay, there's half an hour left, dig in and you kind of feel okay, but it's tough. In this, it might be there's 10 hours left, you're sweating heavily and you're feeling dizzy from the heat, uh, your legs are jelly uh, and your stomach's not feeling so good and you've got to be able to turn it around. So there's definitely a lot of problem solving in there. But I find that the biggest simple way to put this for people is you've got to be able to turn negatives into positives. So maybe you say, okay, well, I've just vomited. This is really bad. Uh, I'm surely going to go slower for the rest of the race. Everything has a more positive way of looking at it, which is I've never vomited before. So can I finish a race with this? I know it's going to mean a lot to me to keep going. And how quickly can I turn it around? So I think that's one of the key skills. It's about always being able to find a good spin so that you can stay motivated and that you don't get negative thoughts going through your head because there's a million things that, that feel bad your legs hurt <clears throat> overheating you don't want to eat anything more um maybe you've tripped over and you've got bloody knees and stuff and, and you just say okay well what are the good things here well i'm still running 
uh, I'm actually moving at an okay pace. Um, it doesn't feel as hot as it was before. There's, you can always get the flip side of that coin. And that, that I think is it's a very difficult thing to do sometimes, but it's essential because otherwise you get those negative thoughts on repeat, like my legs hurt, my legs hurt, my legs hurt. And you've got to be able to stop thinking like that. Otherwise you'll just slow down and you'll basically make yourself do a lot worse if, if you can't do that. So it's not easy, but it's definitely something that comes with practice as well. But I imagine it, you know, it's not that dissimilar to, to being in the Olympics and you're saying, OK, well, I'm in fourth now and just off the medals. Can I get third? I know I can. I'll believe it. There's a few miles left. I'll catch them. I'm going to give it everything. I seem to be running better than the person next to me. So at least that's a positive. You look at all the good things you can rather than the, the negative things. And that allows you to get the most out of your body. Yeah, I think you're underestimating how hard what you do is. But that's that. That's fine. <laughs> well, it, one one thing I find very funny is I've spoken to uh, top level marathoners, uh, like Ethiopian and Kenyan guys, when I've been out at road marathons, and I'm astounded when they're saying things like, "Yeah, we start off our, our jog at five minute mile pace, and then we speed up." And I'm just you know, my jaw drops, going, "That just sounds crazy to me." And then they hear that I run for 12 hours or 15 hours, and they can't get their heads around it. I think I've seen this with other sports as well. Whatever you personally haven't done or can't do is the hardest thing in the world. And whatever you can do, like for those guys running a 430 mile, that's nothing. We can do a 430 mile, so it's not hard. But to them, running for more than three hours is super hard because they've not done it. So I think it's just perspective there as well. I love it, Ian. We've already taken more time than we promised. And we're definitely going to be rooting for you this weekend Thank out you. there at Western States. Good luck to you. Final question, if people want to follow you or find out more about your coaching, what do they do? Yeah, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's Sharmanian, Sharmanian, my last name, first name. And then if they are interested in coaching, it's Sharman Ultra. And yes, that is like the toilet paper, but it's not spelled <laughs> like that. But that makes it much more memorable for people. <laughs> I love it. Thank you, Ian, for joining. This has been an awesome discussion. Thanks a lot, guys. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Ian and Kara. I think he was crystal clear on his perspective, which is inspiring for us here at the Clean Sport Collective. Thanks to Ian and to Kara for joining me in this. And then, of course, thanks to you for listening. As always, you can check us out at cleansport.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at cleansportco. That's cleansportco in those different social media platforms and with that we'll wrap this episode number five our next episode in a couple of weeks we'll actually have a a person coming on from major league baseball to talk about clean sport in that area and so we're excited to have that discussion and we'll talk to you then in a couple of weeks